Okay, guys, welcome back to the Weak Side Podcast. I'm Connor Orr alongside Jenny Vrentis. And, you know, there's just not a lot of time to spend yammering off the top like we always do, Jenny. A lot of stuff happened on Sunday, and we'll get right into it, but not without addressing the most important news item of the day. Happy birthday, Jenny, to my wonderful co-host. I hope you have a great birthday. Thank you, Connor. Very appreciated. You are a good friend. (laughs) All right. So, uh, you know, this was funny because we were sitting around on Slack, a few of us on Sunday, and I said to our editor, Mitch Goldich, man, nothing is going on in the first quarter of the Sunday games. This is just (laughs) ridiculous. Uh, There's nothing to write about. And then boom, 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 boom. Like all this stuff happened in a row. Tried to catch a breath, take my poor, uh, poor little terrier Ernie for a walk uh, in between the four o'clock games when I caught a breather. Come back. Dak Prescott is no longer on the, possibly no longer on the Dallas Cowboys. So crazy day on Sunday. But uh, let's get right into it with our first uh, news topic, which is Dak Prescott. And he is out for the season after dislocating his ankle in a win over the Giants. Prescott, as you guys know, was playing on the franchise tag and left the field Sunday, not only with his own future in question, but probably the long-term future of uh, the Dallas Cowboys under center. So do we expect him back when he's healthy, do you think, Jenny, or do you think that this is one of those situations that could get really interesting? Well, there's a lot of different ways this could go. I do think there's a chance he goes back to the Cowboys, but I think the injury yesterday also created the possibility that he's not with the Cowboys next season. And maybe the Cowboys say, let's see what your market is out there rather than applying the tag to him, which would go up uh, next year from what it was this year, the second straight year in a row, if he were to be tagged. Um, I could... I could see that happening to kind of, especially if the medicals haven't come back or he hasn't been cleared yet, uh, there being a little bit of uncertainty. And I think it's really so frustrating. This is why players push for the most that they can get in any given situation. I mean, I don't have to say that, Connor. I think that's that's obvious. But just seeing him on the field, that was a heartbreaking scene. And knowing that his contract status beyond this year is up in the air is just an additional stressor for any player that has to go through that. I'm going to ask a few how could you questions throughout. And I don't mean you. I just mean like the royal you. But like, when when Dak Prescott went down, I think the thing that bothered me the most out of the entire situation was the immediate inclination for everybody to say that he should have signed his contract. Like, what yeah. sort of like subhuman reaction is that? Like, you, you don't go to a playground and a kid falls off a slide and then you say, well, uh, that's going to affect lunch or recess. Like, you know, y- you this is a human being and by all accounts, you know, one of the true like good people in the NFL. And I'm just shocked mm-hmm. that like everyone is now like almost like standing for the Cowboys for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. It's just strange in all of these situations that people want to side with the billionaires. I just will will never understand that. Well, maybe we do understand it, but it's disappointing nonetheless. Understanding it by, by saying that, I mean, it comes from a gross place full of prejudices and full of... Uh, you know, inclinations that you or I disagree with, Connor. Um, I just, you know, it's strange to me that you would give the the team, the billionaires, the ones who are trying to, you know, milk every ounce they can out of players uh, over the players themselves. Yeah, 
And I think what's going to be interesting coming up here is that Dak Prescott, just by virtue of not being Tony Romo, was not appreciated properly by the Cowboys fan base, even though I might argue pretty successfully that he was a better quarterback over, you know, if you compare uh, whatever years to years over first three years, whatever you want to do, stats for stats, I think he was a better quarterback. And the narrative all along has been that Prescott was buoyed by this running game, this offensive line that Jerry Jones built, this system that was in place to make it easier for him to do these things when, you know, that was sort of a fairy tale that's been constructed around this team for a long time. I don't think, you know, on Sunday, for example, you're missing two of your starting tackles and he brings you back from down 17 to three to be in this game in the first place. Ezekiel Elliott's not exactly what he was a couple of years ago. This is Dak Prescott's team. He is the heart and soul of this team. And, you know, everybody that's assuming that they can get it done with Ezekiel Elliott and Andy Dalton, I am not 100% sure I'm on board with that. I think that's well said. I think his value was underestimated, not overestimated. You know, Jerry Jones released a statement saying we have no doubt that he will return to the position of leadership and purpose that he brings to our team. But that's a vague statement, I'm sure purposely vague, without any commitment to things that will happen in the future. And ultimately, this came down to the Cowboys not doing what they needed to to keep him to a long-term extension. And now Prescott is in an uncertain situation uh, because of those decisions by the organization. So as you said earlier, Connor, it's unfair to put it on him. Also, as you referenced, like he's become such a a source of inspiration and a source of um, just strength, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, he was open about his mother's battle with cancer. More recently, he was open about his mental health struggles during the pandemic and following the loss of his brother. And I think that's a courage that you don't often see from young players, um, especially, you know, somebody that there's a lot of expectations on them. Sometimes the easier thing to do is just to not be open about what you're going through or what you're facing. And he's chosen a different path. And as a result has really reached a lot of people because of that. Um, And so I think that added to the reaction that you saw league wide uh, and that he's such a beloved figure clearly by his teammates and everyone who was uh, on the field at that moment, but then also around the league. It's going to be crazy when, Bill Belichick goes from winning 10 games with Cam Newton to 12 games with Dak Prescott in, uh, in 2021. Just what a, he's just going to luck into two great quarterbacks in a row. Good for him. You should have saved that for the Oracle. (laughs) I like that. That was a good one. Um, all right. What do we have for uh, topic number two? All right. Topic number two, Connor. In quite possibly the lone redemptive moment of 2020, Alex Smith safely returned to NFL action on Sunday against the Rams after nearly losing his leg and life in an on-field incident in 2018. Smith went 9 for 17 for 37 yards in a 30-10 loss, which simultaneously further clouded Washington's increasingly bizarre quarterback picture. What say you of this whole thing, Connor? Well... I would say that uh, you and I were talking a little bit about this as he was going on to the field, and there is like this sort of simultaneous excitement, 
because you're like, good for him, because this is what he wanted deep down. I mean, this is what he was striving for. But then there's that part of you that's like, oh, God, what's about to happen? Like, he has not been contacted by anybody since Mm -hmm. that moment, like has not felt himself be tackled, has not gone to the ground at full speed. And then you're putting him out there in the driving rain with a bad offensive line against Aaron Donald, which is sort of a really weird and like borderline dangerous thing to the point where like, I am like much too soft of a person. Like if I was Ron Rivera, I would have gone to Logan Thomas, the tight end who is their emergency quarterback. I would just been, I would have been like, I'm sorry, Alex. Like I just, I can't do it. Yeah. He was definitely put out there under non ideal circumstances. I thought it was tremendous for the broadcast to find his wife and his three children. Um, But you could see the nervousness that his wife Elizabeth had on her face. You know, there was a moment where she kind of had her, hands up behind her head and you could tell she was kind of clenching a little bit. Um, So just trying to imagine the feelings that she must have had in that situation. But, you know, Smith has said he wanted to come back. This was a goal for him. He wanted to show his children that, you know, he would push through this and come out on the other side. And he did that. But I agree with you, Connor. It was also nerve-wracking to watch. Um, So it was both things. It was this wonderful moment that was really emotional because it was, you know, ESPN had detailed so well his road back and how close he came to life-threatening situations, or or it was a life-threatening situation. Um, And then to see him return and have the chance to go on the field, um, but then also that fear that comes with it of, what must be going through his head every time he got hit? Would would he be okay, et cetera? Yeah, no, it was crazy. And I wonder now, now that he's kind of gotten on the field and that Ron Rivera has said that he wants to go after the division, it's still very much, I think, open. It's not like anything that really happened this weekend changed it. I think I heard someone do the math Um this weekend that there is a scenario where a team with four wins could actually take home the NFC East this year. So it's not like this thing is, you know, uh, in a death race right now. We Everyone has time uh, to, to come back and dig themselves out of this hole. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what he does. I mean, you know, it's not like Smith played in a way that like Justin Herbert in, in, in LA, right? Where it was like, okay, well, there's no doubt this is an uncomfortable situation, but I can't go back to him. And Ron Rivera did say that Kyle Allen is his quarterback moving forward, but you wonder what is going to happen now. Cause you've already pulled the rip cord on, on Dwayne Haskins. You're not, you're, you're not going to go back to this developmental project, but what do you do now? Um, knowing that basically Alex Smith is your backup emergency spot guy. Like I, I don't really know what the plan is now moving forward. Yeah, they're in a weird spot. And I go back to the spring, and I remember Ron Rivera's comments uh, in a a group call I had done with him. And he said at that point, this was April or May, Connor, and he talked about if there was no preseason, no training camp or a shortened training camp, he then Kyle Allen would have a leg up over Dwayne Haskins because he, you know, had familiarity with what they were going to be running from their shared time in Carolina together. And I thought that was an odd comment to be making because even if there's a shortened preparation, I mean, this is a first round pick, you would do everything you could to get this this guy ready. And so 
Clearly, there was a skepticism with Haskins uh, when Rivera took the job. That seems to be apparent if he was saying that before they had any time together. And so then I go back to the draft, and I do wonder. I mean, of course, Chase Young was this consensus player that you have to take, uh, you know, if you're in that spot. But do they regret not taking, you know, Tua or, or Herbert uh at number two, I mean, if they were already sort of making contingency plans if Haskins wasn't ready at that point, and clearly they they moved on from Haskins pretty quickly, which also indicates that skepticism. So do they, do they regret or are they going to regret not taking a quarterback in last year's draft? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, in the way that this season is going, do you knock yourself out of the running for one of these other guys um, just by virtue of, you know, everybody's going to glob into like a weird four or five win season here and and, and that's where you're going to be. But, you know, I, I don't know. I feel bad for Dwayne Haskins and all this. I think, you know, it was definitely unnecessary for whoever in the organization was leaking to the Washington Post that he was unprepared or wasn't studying. It almost feels like you're kicking a guy out the door when he was drafted to a team that the owner was the only one who wanted him and then didn't feel like he bore the responsibility to develop him after he got there, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. just one of those crappy situations where, and you can go back to, we pay attention to the quarterbacks because it's a bigger deal. But this happens to a majority of the guys who are drafted in the NFL, right? It's somebody who wants him and then doesn't want to put the work into it and then just kicks these guys out of the league when, you know, in reality, they could be good somewhere or, you know, they could do something important um, down the road. But, uh, you know, We'll see what happens. I don't know. I'm I'm not optimistic that Washington is making a run here, but uh, yeah. you, you never know. Um, all right, so news topic number three. Uh, Jenny, we have some big breaking bird news here in, uh, in the NFL. <laughs> Sounds more like a seagull, doesn't it? I need to refresh on bird noises, but I'll take it. It's a baby falcon. Um, So the Falcons fired both Dan Quinn and general manager Thomas Dimitrov five games into the season after an own five start. Their regime, no doubt, brought promise to Atlanta, but ultimately fell short of maximizing the primes of both Matt Ryan and Julio Jones. What is next for Arthur Blank? Um, And uh, uh, thankfully, it looks like some of the more uh, frequently used coaching search firms have already been hired by the Texans, so it looks like he might have to do this one on his own. Oh, man, that's a whole other topic to discuss of mm-hmm. uh, the search firms and uh, their low success rates. But um, this is, it was expected. I mean, Dan Quinn had a fight for his job in the second half of last season. Um, but the fact that they w- moved on from both Quinn and Dimitrov after five weeks of the season indicates they want to move quickly or get a leg up on the search. You know, I feel like we see this a lot when the first coaching domino falls, then other teams that are considering making a change on the precipice of making a change act quickly uh, so that they can also kind of make those early reach outs to potential candidates that they couldn't if there was a coach still in place well in many cases they have but (laughs) just not uh not above board i guess but um so uh, you know i feel like i don't know if that accelerated this process or not i mean the zero and five start made it seem like they didn't really have a lot of other options and as you noted connor now they have the chance to evaluate raheem uh 
Raheem Morris, sorry, almost said Mostert there. Uh, Raheem Morris as the interim head coach. So um, that'll be an interesting opportunity for him. It will be a good opportunity for Morris. And uh, <laughs> Shelby is the best with uh, our producer with the, the clutch sound effects. Um, Morris was interesting because, you know, if you, you know, I, I'm sure you could say the same thing. It's, you know, sometimes that name will pop up around the league, especially around coaching time. And he was a guy that did have that one really good season in Tampa Bay. Remember, he took over for John Gruden and surprised some people there and then you know, had two less good seasons. But, you know, he's only in his mid 40s and he had he got that job very young at the time. Um, and maybe he's learned a lot. He's coached on both sides of the ball. And, you know, like that name has popped up in and out of, um, of different uh, coaches circles at times so you know maybe you want to get an extended evaluation of him but I, I don't know I still think it could have waited and I got clobbered for saying this online and, and maybe I'm wrong but I, it's just you know all the stuff that Dan Quinn had done for Atlanta the relationships he built I'm sure the players still love him there like and and it might be weird to do sort of a, a dead man walking situation but at the same time you it, he probably earned at least some way to to have a little bit more of a ceremonious exit than that. I mean, he brought the franchise to one of its two Super Bowls. Um, this is the second time now in a row that the Falcons have fired a head coach with a winning record um, that's going to leave with a winning record, Mike Smith being the other one. It's just, I don't know, it's just... I just felt like you could have done a little something for him on the way out. Maybe, maybe it already was the gift was bringing him back this season. I don't know. Yeah, it uh, certainly was, is a tough ending for Dan Quinn there. And, you know, as you mentioned, he's done a lot of good things. I think ultimately the fact that he's a defensive coach and the defense was struggling um, really ultimately sealed the deal. Um, but it'll be interesting to see the direction that they go in. And as you referenced, Connor, it's disappointing that the Texans are going the search firm route. Um uh, if nothing else, I hope that 2020 is the year when people who are in charge, decision makers, you know, really reconsider what they're looking for in coaches rather than saying offensive or defensive, uh, you know, looking for qualities that can lead a team in a pandemic or that can talk openly about racism with their players. Or I just hope that there are different qualities that matter more in this year's search than just you know recent success as a play caller yeah no i agree i think what's interesting about the search firm um that was hired in houston um was that they did um uh, they were uh working for the browns when it was uh, uh they did the triple sweep there they did uh, andrew barry sashi brown and hugh jackson so it was the first all african-american personnel uh, GM head coaching combination. And I know that that was something that they were certainly proud of at the time. You know, uh, their long-term hit and miss rate there, I think is, is tough. I think the the concept of a search firm in general is, is difficult. You know, I think teams should bring them in if they want to backstop themselves on, you know, some of the more legal matters there like you know if for example the lions did that would they have hired matt patricia i don't know you know but mm -hmm. you know i think that's where they come in because you know search firms like everything now is 
so over the top, right? And search firms will have, uh, you know, connections at the FBI or they will have police sources and, th- and they'll be able to run these background checks and stuff like that. But um, I don't know. I just think you should listen to the Weak Side podcast. We'll pick you out a good head coach. And uh, <laughs> now it sounds like the bird is laughing at me. Um, but yeah, I, I think that we could, I, I would feel good that about installing a head coach. I bet I could get a team to 10 wins in their second season if you gave me the chance to pick your head coach. I feel pretty good about that. I like it. Maybe one in, in one of these coming weeks, Connor, we can do a head coach picking section of the show. Ooh, I like Both that. some top candidates. It's all going to be what special teams say? coordinators, so it doesn't really matter. You know? <laughs> we know what Orr's preferences are. <laughs> all right, what do we have for number four? As we write this, the NFL is making several hundred changes to the schedule to frantically make up for COVID cancellations, rendering the one we were handed back in May completely worthless. Are we ever going to get to a point where we see games begin on time? No, right? That would be my answer. Yeah, I feel like we're just at the start of the changes to come this season. It's... um, It would be naive to expect otherwise, given that the NFL's protocols clearly have gaps in them. Uh, They are not foolproof. Uh, This is not a bubble situation. So, you know, they can they've added some additional protocols in the case of an outbreak and additional recommendations for teams and ways to uh, ensure mass compliance and um, protocol compliance. But the reality is, you know, the virus is continuing to surge in some parts of the country, and there are members of the organization that are going home and, and living in their communities and coming back to the facility. So um, I think we've just seen the beginning of the schedule Tetris, and, you know, it sounds like the NFL is not going to go to a week 18 unless absolutely necessary, but it's hard to imagine that it won't soon be absolutely necessary. It's funny because, you know, I think that we will probably get through, you know, they'll just slam bang their way through this season and then they do what they always do, right? Which is like that smug, like, see, well, everything turned out all right, but it didn't turn out all right. Like there are a lot of people who are really mad about the way that this is going. Like there are teams every week that, you know, we, I remember the conversation, gosh, four or five years ago that like how unfair is it Thursday night football? This is like double Thursday night football. Like some of these situations are way worse. You're getting condensed preparation time, you know, these staffs are big, sure, and coaching staffs are good enough that they can handle all this stuff, but you're simultaneously preparing for maybe two opponents at once, one of whom I think the Bills uh, last week had to, to prepare for one game and then also a, a potential short week game against the Chiefs. It's like, what what are we doing to these guys? Like, And, and everyone went into it thinking that this was going to be strange, but... I think the NFL could make it a lot easier and a lot less strange by just like relaxing for a second and and just admitting that, hey, we got to bump some stuff back a little bit. Yeah. And I think there's two different things going on. One is that I appreciate the perspective of uh, Tom Telesco and Vic Fangio and Peter King's column this Monday, basically saying like, there's a lot going on in this world. Um, We're willing to make changes to football schedule. You know, Fangio's daughter is a nurse, he told Peter and said that she had gotten COVID during the pandemic while caring for patients. And Telesco essentially said, 
this year we have to be adjustable with the schedule. And I thought those perspectives were really important and really needed and a reminder to keep football in perspective. But I think the flip side of it is what Jason McCourty expressed to reporters in New England. And I thought his comments were really powerful. He was essentially saying that he was frustrated um, with the way things had gone. It felt like neither the league nor the players union, he said, he felt like they had players' best interests at heart. the Patriots obviously had that situation where they were asked to fly to Kansas City in the same day to play a game two days after Cam Newton's positive test and then Gilmore later tested positive as well. Um, and I think he was questioning the team being put in that situation during the incubation period, which was a really important thing to express. And basically he was saying they're just trying to do the thing that looks the best. And the only ones that care about us in the building is our team here. And I was, you know, I thought those were really strong comments for a respected veteran leader to make. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it's just, you know, I, I was watching 60 minutes um, yesterday, which is a very old person thing to say. Um, but sometimes when you finish the late CBS game, you can't find the remote in time to get over to NBC. And then 60 minutes just draws you in. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's Scott Pelly. You know, he's got like a good voice or something like that. And you just kind of get kind of get locked in with Scott Pelly. But um, he did this thing on you know, where we're really at in in terms of a vaccine, in terms of a COVID cure or whatever it is. And he asked all the top um, physicians and uh, pharmacists who are working on this, would you rather have a vaccine in at the end of the year or would you rather it just be universally understood that everybody wears a mask? And they all said, everybody wears a mask. Like, it's going to help us a hundred times more than that. It's so much more accessible. It's so much more affordable. And it does basically the same thing. And it just blows my mind that we're at the point where it's that's still not fully understood. Um, and that, you know, NFL players, it would be great if they could take the lead on this. And I think that there's some that want to and that can. Um, but then we just have other people that aren't interested at all. I mean, college football on Sunday was or Saturday was just a joke. I was flipping through and who was the head coach of Tennessee that just he wore the mask around his head like he was like yeah. a, a caterpillar and just Making didn't cover his mouth the whole. It. Yeah, I mean, like, are you kidding me? And, you know, it's just like all the lead physicians in the country are telling you that this helps as much as anything to just stop this. And then we can all go back to normal and stop being ridiculous. But instead, this is, mm-hmm. you know, this is where we are. And it's and it's players, some of whom are not taking the lead and some of whom are, you know, just so much smarter and wiser and are using their soapbox in the right way. And you hope that that's where our attention is eventually going to be diverted to. It'll be interesting to see how the league handles the tight situation. They've clearly been doing an investigation there for a while. And if they're found to have violated protocols and that was a factor in the outbreak, then I'm sure to there will be some kind of harsh punishment, um, which there should be. You know, if there's non-compliance with protocols, then teams should be held accountable. Um, but the additional part of that is that these protocols are not perfect. Um, and the NFL is, I don't know, I just feel like there's not enough acknowledgement that the protocols leave these gaps open. And so they just say, oh, well, there's going to be positive tests, uh, as if that's not a big deal. And as if that's not a big stressor. Yeah, I don't know. I say, uh, you put, you know, you get uh, uh, double digit po- or 
two two outbreaks and you're out. Like you're just you you are not in the league for this year. Goodbye. Or or you uh or you're relegated as some of our uh overseas fans might appreciate, you know. I'm coming around to the idea of relegation but only to punish the covid people, you know, who aren't following the rules and aren't wearing their masks. Then you go into the covid league and you have to play all the other teams that are bad and the all the only reward is that there is no reward you just have to come back next year you know you get to go play wow. down on the on the bad field you know by the way your 60 minutes reference earlier reminded me of the days when we would be in the press box for <laughs> jets games and you know often cbs games since they're in the afc and we would put our little portable TVs uh, next to our laptops because that was a thing that we did in those days. And it would always be Face the Nation would be on when we turned on our little portable TVs. So that was our Sunday morning ritual of having Face the Nation playing as we were preparing for the 1 p.m. Jets game. Face the Nation. I remember your portable TV. It was mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, very essential at the time. I mean, <laughs> at the time now, it was, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and it's so crazy to think that like those mm-hmm. things existed, you know? what I mean yeah like, that I logged that to every road game now you can just download the Tunity app and like hear the press <laughs> box or the TV uh sound from the press box TVs or do any other number of things to hear the sound but that was the best thing to see replays and to listen to the broadcast so you didn't miss anything was that on an antenna was it did it yeah, work by an there, antenna <laughs> there was an antenna which was like <laughs> the annoying part because it didn't always work <laughs> yeah I remember, I mean, it must have been some ridiculous podunky press box that we were at when we had a, when we had a tough time locking in after Face the Nation. Um, but yeah, I feel like times. it was the Raiders press box where we really struggled with the uh, antenna situation. And speaking of which, All right. oh boy, Sunday was notable for big statement wins by both the Raiders and the Browns, two perennial laughing stocks who are now significant power players in the NFC. Um, we can play a game here. Uh, if you were throwing money down at this moment, which of the two teams would you take to make the playoffs, Cleveland or Las Vegas? I'm going with Cleveland, Connor. Wow. Yeah. I mean, okay. Looking at their schedule ahead, yes, they're in the AFC North, so there are some tough games with the Steelers. They have already played the the Ravens once. They play the Steelers this week, of course. They play the Steelers in week 17, um, and they play the Ravens one more time. But they've also got in there the Jaguars, the Texans, the Eagles, the Giants, the Jets. So I see a lot of winnable games in the future for the Browns. And I think what will be interesting is, okay, they've got the Steelers this week and then the Bengals the week after that, but then they play the Raiders. And that could be a very interesting game for AFC playoff picture purposes. It could be. And it's so weird because, I mean, I've been watching Brown bad Browns football since 1999. Um in what was, I'm sure, uh, a Vrentis heyday, you know, when we were sitting around wondering, well, are we going to get Courtney Brown or LeVar Arrington <laughs> at the top of the draft to save our franchise? That was always a big uh, moment uh, for me, the big uh, Courtney Brown uh, poster and all that good stuff. But uh, this is a beautiful brand of football. And the weird thing is that Baker Mayfield is not playing well. Like, he's he's not playing like a top you know, 10 or 15 quarterback, even though I think he's certainly capable of that. And I wonder what's going to happen once 
his developmental curve kind of latches into what they're doing offensively because, I mean, obviously the running game is good. They're finding ways to get Odell Beckham involved, mm-hmm. um, all that stuff. But um, I, I think that Baker Mayfield, as we've seen, is certainly capable of being that guy who can, you know, throw for 300 yards a game and, and two or three touchdowns, um, has not done it yet. And if they can add that component or element to their offense, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm with you. I mean, I picked them to go nine and seven, and I thought that was, you know, people were going to laugh at me. But at this point, I'm like, there could be three 10-win teams in the AFC North. Yeah, going through their schedule, it was pretty easy to find a scenario in which they get to 10 wins, which is kind of wild. So do you agree that if you had to put money on either Cleveland or Las Vegas, you're going Cleveland too? Yeah, but I do need to mea culpa a little bit here with Las Vegas. And I think that anybody who has listened to this podcast, even back to when we were on with Albert Breer, and so going back to when John Gruden was hired, I mean, I was just the most adamant anti-Gruden person out there I just thought that and and maybe it stemmed from you know I talked to like a dozen of his former players before he got the job and they were all kind of skeptical about him being able to come back and do this Um, but I, I think it was more just this idea that you know all these feature stories that he had welcomed over the years of him stewing in this dark office and coming up with all these offensive schemes and that there was some brilliance that was getting ready to be unleashed in the first two years we just didn't see it you know there there wasn't any evidence that any of that had taken place and but now it exists right i mean i I, you know you can watch a raiders game and say okay this is what he was doing all this time like he just whether he needed the offensive line to make it work or whether he needed the right pieces i mean like you know darren waller is, is is a huge part of what they're doing but i mean i can see the vision now um and i'm certainly not like a convert by any stretch of the imagination but i would I I take him much more seriously than I think I did two or three years ago. Yeah, and a lot of the moves were scrutinized, certainly the Khalil Mack trade. um, And you can argue both sides of that. I mean, on one hand, you're getting rid of a franchise defensive player who set a standard and a culture in the locker room. But then on the other hand, they've really used that return to build their roster in a perhaps more sustainable way for you know, with younger players and, you know, we're seeing the benefits of that right now. Um, so, I mean, I think some of the skepticism was warranted, Connor, for reasons you described. But yeah, I mean, it, we're sort of finally seeing the plan round into focus a little bit more. Uh, and going through their schedule as well, it is also not difficult to plot out a scenario in which they also get to 10 wins. So we could be looking at both the Browns and the Raiders being playoff teams. Yeah. And so they got Josh Jacobs um, out of that Cleo Mack trade, um, which, you know, I, are there, were there other running backs that you could have gotten with a third round pick, you know, or a fourth round pick probably, you know, but, you know, so they got uh, Josh Jacobs and then let me just make sure I have the, uh, um, the pick right here, but I think it was, because I want to make sure it's the one from Chicago, but yeah. So, and then Damon Arnett. So, you know, I don't know in, in the long run, you know, 
what's going to come of that. Do I think, you know, maybe if you had done the Amari Cooper trade, but you kept Khalil Mack, would you be 10 times better off at this point? And then you sub Josh Jacobs for another running back that you may have liked in the second round or the third round, or, you know, like a lot of other teams do. I don't know. I mean, who's to say, you know, he, he did do a nice job finding Max Crosby and some of these other guys that are getting after the passer, but I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm just less anti Gruden, than I was before in that he does design some pretty neat stuff. And uh, I think he's elevated Derek Carr a little bit, but I don't know. I'm, I'm going with the Browns right now. It just seems like everything is working for them. Everything's so like fluid and I don't know. It's, it's scary. You know, it's weird as a person who grew up liking this team. It's very 2020, right? It's just like, like nothing makes sense so that it, it kind of blends in with everything else. Yeah. But we'll also say this about the Raiders and I so- Someone sent this tweet last night, and again, I forget who it is, so I do not mean to rip it off, but essentially it took until his third season to get a signature win for the Raiders. True. Uh, And this was clearly a signature win. You know, beating the Chiefs at Arrowhead is no easy task. Um, Derek Carr looked good. You know, the team was rolling, and so this was an achievement. But yes, it's also was the third year before they got a game like that. And, you know, we'll see what's to come in the weeks ahead. As I mentioned, they have uh, the Browns coming up. Um, Before that, they have the Buccaneers. Um, So there are, you know, some interesting games on the near horizon that we'll see how they fare. (laughs) Did you see, by the way, that John Gruden, I think he he threw it deep on fourth down when he went for it. And he said, yeah, I wonder what the nerds at Pro Football Focus thought of that. And it, they they thought that's what you should do. Like, you know, like he's like, <laughs> he just, it's so funny that like, you know, his grasp on analytics is still so poor. And like, he's like, he's like making this call almost in defiance of exactly what everybody is telling you you should have done in that situation. (laughs) That is quite funny. He's still just like such a ham, you know? Yeah. That's what drives me nuts about him. I think it's just like the, the, the cheese factor of it all, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right, Connor, let's move on to everyone's favorite section. The Oracle. All right. Uh, so I, I think I'm going to come out of left field a little bit here. Yes. My theme music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm going to come out of left field a little bit here and say that I uh, was really impressed on Sunday with the Giants. And um, Jenny, you uh, helped me with this exercise on uh, last Friday. We did a post on whether or not you could combine the Jets and Giants into a team that could win any number of games. You guessed three and thirteen, Jenny and Anthony, our thirteen-year-old expert um, who simulated the season for us on Madden, also came out with three and thirteen from that roster. So, rock-solid guess there. Nice. But I did end up liking the um, the Giants a little bit more than I thought I would. I mean. Yes, their pass rush is non-existent. Um, there are definitely a lot of holes on the roster, but I think that there's a good nucleus of guys here if Daniel Jones can take off. And so I'm predicting a, a little bit of a Giants run here. I think that I don't know what's going to happen in the uh, in the NFC East, but if you look at their upcoming schedule, uh, the Washington football team is next. Uh, the Eagles on a short week on Thursday night football. And who knows what's going on with that team? 
Um, yes, the Buccaneers to start November, but then Washington football team again and Eagles again. So, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a way that you can, and then the Bengals after um, the Eagles to end November. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that they're going to sweep two divisional opponents, but like, I don't know. I think that Joe Judge is a good coach. I think he does not have a creative offensive coordinator, and he doesn't have a lot of help at a lot of places. But I think they could gut out a few wins here, like you know, like rip off like okay, the next one, two, three, four, five, six. Like if they won four out of the next six games, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and you go back to how they looked against the Steelers in the opener. That was kind of another data point. There are multiple ways to be 0 and 5 and 0 and 5 is never good but you could be the 0 and 5 and look like the Jets or you could be the 0 and 5 and look like the Giants and I think there are indications of the way that the Giants are playing that there's stuff to build on um, that they could sooner get a win than the Jets um, and that you know maybe when they get a few more pieces that this could be a team that's headed in a better direction. I mean, that exercise that you suggested last week, was, re- which was really fun, Connor, um, just reinforced how many holes there are in both of these rosters. It was so bad. And, you know, I was going through and you're just thinking like, oh, my goodness, like, who's going to play? Um, who's going to play cornerback for this? Yeah, team? You know, corner and-, and receiver really stood out to me. You know, it was interesting side note to that exercise. So you guys can read it online. Um, but so uh, we had like a bunch of p- a panel of experts, um, Jenny, um, Brian Costello, who's the beat writer for the New York Post, Art Stapleton, who does a great job covering the Giants um, for the record here in North Jersey. Um, but our, uh, our, our photo editor, Marguerite, her son, Anthony Lucarelli, is a Madden fiend. And so when she heard about this project, she said, you know, I have no idea how to work Madden. The last time I played Madden was, geez, probably when Jenny and I were, were on the beat together in, in 2010, and I was living in my little, uh, you know, single guy apartment and, you know, just kind of hanging out and, and enjoying PlayStation 2. But um, I said, I don't even know if you could import a custom roster. I didn't even know how any of this stuff worked. And Anthony was aces. He said, no problem. I got this. Did it in like 20 minutes after like after school, like a total boss. But he said what was interesting was you had to put all the players on the Giants because they were going to play the Giants schedule. And he said, once I removed all of the pl- the good players from the Jets and put them on the Giants, the Jets made the playoffs in that simulation, oddly. Oh, interesting. So the Jets without Mackay Becton, Quinnen Williams, uh, Pierre Desir, um, uh, George Fant, uh, Jamison Crowder, like basically like seven of their best players uh, made the playoffs without them in that simulation, whereas the Giants went 3-13 and 13 as a Jets-Giants all-star team. Wow, interesting. So there you well, go. Well, it's a fun exercise. It was instructive, Connor. Yes, uh, and again, big props to uh, Anthony Lucarelli, the man for helping us out with that. Um, all right, let's get to the real reason we're all here, um, the, the Vrentis Consensus. Consensus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so this week's Frentis consensus, inspired by the Dak Prescott injury, is that the franchise tag should be a thing of the past. We have talked about this before, Connor, but the Prescott injury really puts into focus why it's bad thing for players in a league when one play can change a season can change the direction of their career and the franchise tag was you know 
put in place in the 90s, and I think it's far more prevalent than anyone at that time expected it to be. Sort of a moot point to make now because a new CBA was just renegotiated and the franchise tag is part of that CBA. But the argument has always kind of been it's difficult to push for things at the bargaining table that only affect a handful of players. Um, And while only a handful of players every year are tagged, you could argue that many more players are affected by the market being constricted in this way and that that affects the contracts that other players at those same positions then receive. Um, And so it's just a device that is... It sounds like something that's great. You're a franchise player, but in fact, it's restrictive to a player's rights. And, you know, it's I think it's worth kind of giving up something else to try to get rid of it. Now, of course, the owners like it because it allows them to maintain players um, and gives them some measure of control in the era of free agency. Um, So, of course, they like it and it would take a a lot to give it up uh, to give up to get it. And, you know, now we've already moved to an expanded season and things that might have been bargaining chips. So I don't really know what the answer would be, but. It just is really, you know, it would be nice to see an NFL where the franchise tag did not exist and where you're not in the seconds after Dak Prescott's injury thinking, oh my gosh, he's on the franchise tag. He doesn't have the long-term security of a contract. That would at least give him that peace of mind as he rehabs. It's fascinating because um, someone like Jerry Jones is in this position because, you know, way back in the 80s, um, when he bought the team, he was such a proponent of free agency, of player movement, and all these things that would make the game flashier and more exciting. And I can't think of anything that uh, is more exciting than, for example, Cam Newton playing for the Patriots this year, or you know, any of these kind of these new uh, Tom Brady playing for the Buccaneers. And you know, player movement is good for the NFL as long as, you know, they're treated fairly and equitably when they get there. But, you know, I I just think it's dumb to restrict a guy there for one year. The tag, like you said, is, has been abused in so many different ways. And I think it's honestly just holding the NFL back from being more interesting. Like that's, you know, just plain and simple. I mean, you know, it would be so much more interesting if a team doesn't want to pay their running, you know, Derrick Henry. And I know that they came to terms with on a long-term deal there, but like, you know, it, had they wanted to just squeeze the last like drops of juice out of him on the franchise tag and then get rid of him, he would have been so much more interesting on another team or, you know, there's a million different scenarios there, but I agree. Franchise tag is, uh, is for the birds. <laughs> nice Connor. Tie it all back in. <laughs> Consensus. Well, thanks everyone, as always, for joining us this week on the Weekside Podcast. And you can write into us at weeksidepod at gmail.com or give our new voicemail line a try. We'd love to hear some messages, hopefully, play some of them on the show in the weeks to come. And that's at 929 445 7349. The Weekside Podcast is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Marivic is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. 
Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed. And while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.